Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Claudine, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Sure, I'm Claudine Burnett. I'm a retired librarian who spent over 25 years going through old newspapers from Southern California, and I've written several books based on that research. I got to ask about the Prohibition era because you wrote about Long Beach. Now, I've talked about Washington, D.C. I've talked about like specific areas, but what was going on in Long Beach? Uh, Long Beach was quite unique. Uh, first of all, Long Beach was known as a prohibition city. We had some of the leaders of the prohibitionist party living here in the city. The city was alcohol free. We had, for instance, Marie Bream, who was the first woman vice presidential candidate who um, lived in Long Beach and um, several others. So Long Beach was a hotbed for the Prohibition movement, but not everybody um, agreed. And so there was an awful lot of underground activities going on here that had already been perfected by the time that Prohibition went into effect in January of 1920. And if you'd like, I'll show you a picture. This is, can you see that? Uh, I could when you back it up a little. There you go. Okay. This, uh, it's not really working. Is it, it might not show up too well on there. Okay. It was, this was a picture of um, the Long Beach Pike. And that was an amusement area that was built in Long Beach in 1902. So in my book, I talk about what was going on there. There were already um, underground operations in effect before Prohibition because People wanted to go there and have a drink. So there was an underground movement already in existence in Long Beach. So when Prohibition went into effect, they were all set up with their speakeasies and other things. So were they? So you mentioned th them being set up before. So they were already aware that this was going to happen. Like, was it one of the first places to shut down during the Pro era? I know there were some states that kind of held out a little bit longer. It was already underground. And they had the police and other people that were there um, doing takes, you know, money and stuff like that before. Uh, so and that continued when Prohibition went into effect. So Long Beach was ahead of everybody else in having um, um, underground operations because they had already been doing that since 1901 when um, the anti-liquor law went into effect. Now, like when it comes to the, I guess, the culture of Long Beach, I mean, did you have a lot of people that were, I mean, was it, it was a big alcohol problem before? Like how bad did it really impact Long Beach? A lot of businesses? Well, Long Beach was settled by a lot of people from the Midwest and they were very righteous and Christian and they did not like alcohol. In fact, um, Long Beach actually was disincorporated over the liquor question in the 1880s. Um, because they voted to allow one saloon in town. And that one saloon actually paid enough taxes for people to go ahead and um, not have to pay any personal taxes or anything like that. And just the mere fact of allowing that one saloon caused the city to disincorporate. But when they found that their money was going to um, the county and none of the services were being provided. They decided to reincorporate again, allow that one saloon back um, because the saloon had a contract until 1900. And then they voted with a new political party in power not to allow that saloon after 1901. So, but still people wanted a drink. At that time, too, the amusement area known as the Pike was being um, developed, and that's where a lot of underground operations took place, um, as well as a lot of murders, as you can <laughs> read in my book, Prohibition Madness. I got to ask about just the underground creation of alcohol or the way that they're trying to, I guess, deal with it during the whole prohibition era. I mean, who was like, is it like the underground press where magazines had to go underground a little bit and be able to kind of produce stuff? No, they were, they were just underground operations. You know, one of these places where you would knock on the door, like you see in the movies and they would let you on in. And so it especially got, Bad. Now, in Long Beach, um, 
Long Beach continued to grow. It started in 1882. By 1890, it had a population of 500. By 1910, it was described by the U.S. Census Bureau as the fastest growing city in the nation, and it had 2,272 people. And that was because um, of the railroads. We now had railroads. We now had a Pacific Electric red car system, and the harbor opened, and that brought in a tremendous influx of people. And it continued to grow. And then in 1921, oil was discovered on Signal Hill. And the population in Long Beach in 1920 was around 55,000. By 1922, after oil had taken off, it had gone to 126,000 people. Holy crap. And yes, and this brought in an awful lot of people that were considered outsiders, people who wanted to have liquor. Um, and that's when um, some of the underground dealings started to take place. Now, Signal Hill um, was notorious for all of their speakeasies and whatnot. It was pretty open. And um, there were a lot of oil workers that were there from all over the country. And after putting in a hard day's work, they just wanted to have a drink. So um, Signal Hill was also notorious, as well as some of the outlying areas that were not yet annexed to Long Beach such as the Los Cerritos area, which is now part of Long Beach. Now, it's very interesting because some of the most prominent men um, in Long Beach were involved in what was the illicit trade to bring liquor into the United States. One of them was um, a man named Curtis who owned one of the um, canneries down by the harbor area. And he was arrested when there was um, a raid on unloading the ships. Now, you have to put so the importers. Now, the importers were respectable people that you might sit next to in church. And they saw nothing wrong with this. For instance, you could buy um, liquor in Canada for about $15 back then. Um, and... If you were somewhere here in Southern California, you could have it delivered to your door for $65. So it was an open trade. No, it wasn't kept secret and the police were in on it. Um, a, a problem that the importers had were, um, what were they called? Oh, they were called hijackers. And what would happen would be you would have like a landing of liquor onto one of our beaches and it would be loaded into a cart, into a truck, and then the hijackers would take it over. And so these were people that would steal the liquor from the importers. Yeah, did you have a question? No, no, you had your, you were covering your phone with your scarf. I couldn't hear you. Oh, okay. Um, so um, the hijackers would go ahead and take um, the liquor that the importers had paid money to have brought into um, Southern California, and then they would go ahead and they had an underground market. So there were a lot of battles that went on that were never really reported to the police between the importers and the hijackers over the liquor. And so that's why the murders increased and um, there was an awful lot of illegal activity that was going on. Now, the other kind of way to get alcohol was to make it yourself. So we had um, the moonshiners, and I'm sure you've heard of them. And so they would get the grain and go ahead and, you know, make their liquor in some, some out of the way place. And then the police would go after them. And they could usually tell where a seal was by the smell. And, but the moonshiners, they were pretty um, adept at covering it. Burning rubber was one way to cover the smell. And then another way was to use lime to mask the odor. But then they had to, to, to um, get rid of the mash. And um, so they would go on out and dump it somewhere out in the open. But it was something that cows would eat, for instance, or flies or birds. So all of 
that the police had to do was follow a drunken cow to where the <laughs> spill was. Or another way was um, if a fly landed on your arm and you were able to swat it and kill it, you knew that you were pretty close to um, a spill. I have to ask, what surprised what surprised you more? The moonshiners' kind of ways to deal with the smell of the alcohol that they were making, or about the police kind of neglect on some of the crime that was going on? Because I would have to think that if they were getting a piece of some of the alcohol thing, either they didn't agree with it, or if they were just getting a cut of it, I mean, it would be less. They'd have to look the other way with the operations that were going down at the dock. Well, it just depended on how much money they were being paid. <laughs> by the person that was either importing it or making moonshine. Oh, and I have to tell you another thing that I found most interesting is that uh, we had the drugless drug stores. And um, so there were drug stores that popped up here and there. And actually, they had no drugs inside of them, but only moonshine liquor or imported liquor where people could come on in and pretend like they were filling a prescription because you were still allowed to have alcohol if your doctor prescribed it for you. Wow. So I really like the idea of the drugless drugstore. How did the, how, so wait, did the, so did, do you know who, did you look into anybody who was in charge of like the drugless drugstores or anybody like their background? Was it just common citizens? Yeah, it was just common. It was another way. Um, just business it was another business that just went on. So, yeah, there were a number of them. It wasn't like it was a chain like Rite Aid or CVS or anything like that. Just individual little stores that would pop up, so you could get your liquor from the drugstores. But um, did you want to hear about the gambling ships too? Yeah, that those were. Um, you could also beginning about 1928, um, get on um, oh, a little ferry or a little boat to go on out to one of the gambling ships that were stationed off of Southern California. In Long Beach, we had the first, it was called the jo Johanna Smith. And people would just get on these little carriers, take them out to um, the ship. And the ship was outside the control of um, local authorities. So you could, you know, get on one of these little roundabouts, go on out to the ship and um, gamble as well as, as drink. And um, there was quite a bit of activity that was going on, um, including murders, which I write about in my book. And again, they were, they were, there were the gangster element that was competing um, just to see who could control this market. Um, Eventually, this was interesting, that Joanna Smith um, had a fire and um, the local authorities would not go on out and save the ship because, hey, it was outside their authority. So she sunk off of the coast of Seal Beach and she had allegedly like $25,000 um, back then in um, gold and other things that were on ships, uh, silver dollars. And um, some of that is still lying off of our coast. Huh. But our waters are deep, not like um, off of the Mediterranean or, excuse me, the Caribbean. So, um, yeah, some of them are still – some of it's still there. They just have to discover it. When it talks about the gang element, did you look into anybody like – I mean like Al Capone? I know you mentioned about Fatty Arbuckle, which is a name I've only heard really in like pop culture references. I haven't really looked into that guy at all. Well, you know, Al Capone was imprisoned um, here in Long Beach on Terminal Island, and he was released, and he came to Long Beach, and he stayed at the Blackstone Hotel before they took him back to Chicago. Um, but we also had other criminal elements. Um, Later in the days of Prohibition, there were too many independents, and the Chicago mob came in, and they started to want to consolidate these um, different groups into one. They wanted to be in control, just like they were in Chicago. So we had um, one case, um, one fella, his name was Ralph Sheldon, who during one raid on an incoming liquor shipment, um, shot and killed a Long Beach police officer, William Wagoner. 
And that was um, quite a sensation. And it meant then that the local authorities who might have been turning their eye the other way to all of this activity because of public pressure and the murder of a police officer um, decided to pay attention and Sheldon was arrested. But he got he got off. It might have been because um, the names of the jurors were printed in the newspaper, along with their addresses, Jeez. and a lot of them got visits from Sheldon's associates. Um, so Sheldon was um, not convicted of shooting police officer Wagner. His defense was that there was so much going on in the way of shooting at that time that who could know that maybe it was a police officer that had shot Wagoner instead of him. So anyway, that that continued. That's crazy that they printed the jurors' names and they printed their addresses. That's just I don't know. To me, that just seems like someone that was like, "Look, we just don't want them interfering or having this kind of war that went on." So you just print something in the magazine, and I think enough people will be like, "Yeah, I'm going to go this way." Well, it's interesting because one of the things that I did in finding out all of the information about about what was going on was um, go through newspapers. And I compiled um, Long Beach Public Library's Long Beach History Index. And I kept uncovering all sorts of stories. And up until about the 1960s, whenever anybody, um, anything happened to anybody, if they died, if their son went off to war, if there was a murder or suicide, the address was always printed. And that stopped uh, about the mid-1960s when they realized, hey, it's an obituary. Somebody's address is printed. Somebody could go and, you know, rob them while they're, uh, while everybody's at the funeral. So, yeah, printing addresses was really quite a common practice. And, in fact, um, when I was working at Long Beach Public Library, I was in charge of our um, literature and history department, which also included the local history section. A lot of people would come on in and want to know about the history of their house. So um, when I went through and I indexed the local newspapers, which took me about 25 years whenever I could find free time, I always included the address that was printed in the newspaper. And that way people could come in and we could do a keyword search and um, find out about maybe a suicide or a murder that had happened at a house or somebody that had just died and they wanted to know more. So that's um, that was something special that that we did when we indexed the local newspapers. Besides that change in the '60s when they stopped printing the obituary, did they did you notice significant differences from the reporting back during the Prohibition era compared to maybe later Long Beach? Okay, well they still printed obituaries; they just did not give out the address of the person that had died. Um, oh yeah, there was quite a bit of a of a, of a difference. Um, in the local newspapers um, from the 1920s. A lot of them were more sensationalist. Um, of course, there was much more that was going on back in the 1920s and 30s than there was in the 1960s. So yeah, the newspaper coverage was different. But in the 1920s and 30s, sensationalism was what um, people wanted. You know, a murder was really um, interesting to people. It's not that different from today. Not that different from today. Not that different. But one of uh, the ones that I talk about in my book was the torso murder. And I am just amazed that no one has done a documentary or a film on that one. It was so interesting. It happened, oh, about 1932 when um, some um, a, a young man was out in the Los Angeles River following a flood. A flood, and he was just looking for things that might have washed down the river that he could, you know, find and play with. And he saw what he thought was a mannequin. And when he actually pulled it out of the river, he found out that it was the torso of a murdered woman. And so this captivated the entire um, Southern California, probably the United States. I'm sure you would find articles about it in other newspapers. But um, so the look was out to try to find out who this woman could be. I mean, there were no arms or legs. It was just a torso. There was no head. So the Los Angeles Examiner 
they put out a reward of $1,000, which was unbelievable back then, for anybody that would come up with some further information. Well, um, about four weeks later, there were some boys from Long Beach who were, again, playing down by the river. And they were poking around, and they thought they found a turtle shell. And when they looked, it was the head of a woman. And here these boys were, they were like 9, 10, and 11, three of them. So they, had, they, they put the head on the stick and went running up to the road. <laughs> and they stopped a motorist and said, look what we have. And she screamed and immediately took them to the police department. And it was um, the head of the murder victim. And I won't go into details about how um, she was murdered. You can find that in the book. But basically, it was the first time that dental records were used in order to identify a person. So that was also a first um, in the history during that era. Was that was that a, a, a mob related thing, a gang related thing? I'm very interested. No, in organized it wasn't. Crime. It wasn't. It was her doctor boyfriend, and boy was he clever. Um, and he he kept saying that she was alive, um, that she had to leave because of some problems that she was having. Um, anyway, Robbie, read the book. You'll find out more. <laughs> uh, did I guess through your archival research? I mean, did you find any journals? Did you go through? Is it or is it just strictly newspapers? Okay, one thing that I try to do is I only use primary source material. That's because I'm a research librarian, and I find if I used secondary sources, a lot of that is incorrect. Um, for instance, when I was writing Prohibition Madness, I went to, back to a book. It was published um, in the 1940s, and it was called L.A. Murders. And it had um, stories from some of the most respectable, well-known um, mystery writers and journalists that were around back there, including Raymond Chandler and um, some of the others. And when I went through what they had written, it was nothing like what I found um, by going through the local newspapers. Um, it was completely off. And then I realized later that they were under a deadline. They didn't have access to digitized newspapers like we do today. And so um, they just went ahead and made, made stuff up and tried to fill in the pieces. Claudine, you might want to move your phone away from your scarf again. There you go. Okay. So that's why um, primary sources, newspapers are um, of primary importance, at least in my research. And the other thing is that you find when you um, look at journals or talk to people, um, their memory has a tendency to embellish actual details. And so I would try to look through newspapers, several newspapers, to try to get different views on what was happening. At least I was getting the exact dates and a little bit more about you know, what the police had done or more about the murder suspect than um, people remembered or wrote about in later books or journals. Now you stumbled across a, like a, your first material for I, I mean, like when you first started doing this, that you didn't have a bias in any certain direction you wanted to go. Always find that you find the best stuff. Like I look through the JFK files and stuff when they ever they release files because I have an interest in JFK. But I look at like the documents, but I don't have a bias. Like I don't look to an individual. If this is an important name, I got to click this, or I got to scan through all these documents for this name. I kind of just click and just slowly work my way down the list, and I find that some of the stuff, the most interesting stuff, to at least depict the times a little bit better, um, is the stuff that I don't already know or I'm not searching out for. I have no bias in anything. Well, it's good that you're going to um, records such as you mentioned with JFK, because those are testimonies and other things. Those are primary source materials that you're looking at. But it's the secondary ones that um, I try to stay away from or try to go ahead and clear up as well. It's like some of the murder cases that you'll find in my book are what I researched and found by going through documents um, versus what Raymond Chandler and some of the others wrote about in um, L.A. Murders. Did it ever, did it ever change your perspective on where you live, learning all the history behind you know Long Beach? 
Well, it's interesting because we're we're in an age now where people want to learn about local history. And yes, um, I have a good following. Um, when I started writing books, I already knew a number of the newspapermen and whatnot who had come in and done research in my department. Um, and yes, local, local history is a big topic right now. And Long Beach has a tendency to get overshadowed by Los Angeles, even though we're a population of 460,000 and we have a lot of unique events. And sometimes I've become upset because everybody thinks of Southern California as being like Los Angeles and Long Beach gets overlooked. For instance, um, the Smithsonian brought out um, the, the first airplane um, that had flown across country, the Vin Fizz on display here. And um, nowhere did they know that Cal Rogers's plane um, had come from Long Beach, that he had crashed in Long Beach following his cross country flight. And, and that he had actually landed in Long Beach, whereas everybody else said he just landed in Los Angeles, because to most people, Los Angeles and Long Beach are synonymous. So I try to get the record straight on what actual accomplishments Long Beach has made versus and separating it from Los Angeles. Is that like a media thing or is that just what is like, what is that? Like, why are they attributing so many things to Los Angeles? Is that just because it's more known? Well, a lot of it's coming from the East Coast. They have been um, the writers of what's been happening uh, a lot in Southern California. And they probably just have been on a deadline and, and haven't gotten it straight. But I was really, and so was the community, upset that the Smithsonian actually had the Cal Rogers plane, and they did not know first of all, that it had been donated by Long Beach and that um, he had ended his cross-country flight in Long Beach. Did you contact contact them and figure it out? Oh, yes. I, I contacted them, yeah, and um, went ahead and put in some Wikipedia suggestions and whatnot. So, yeah, Long Beach has a lot of accomplishments that are separate from um, Los Angeles, including aviation. Um, when we were one of the first municipal airports in California. Uh, that's Long Beach Airport, which is still in existence. And of course, we always had um, the oil industry. We had a harbor. We had the Navy, uh, Douglas Aircraft Company, uh, a lot of things, a lot of things in Long Beach that are unique to Long Beach and in many cases, the first. We even had a disease named after Long Beach. I didn't know that. By, one of, the guys, the, did, by, one, of the, by one of the researchers. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember what it is, but it's Long Beach something <laughs> or another. And a color. We also had a color named after Long Beach. It was a tan color that um, reflected the color of the sand that was here. I um I can I mean I can relate to at least your personal pride where you live as well too. I mean I live in Maryland, but whenever you say Maryland, people go oh Baltimore. It's like look, that's just a that's a that's no that's not it. We're Maryland. That's what we are. It's like I'm from Ocean City, Maryland. It's kind of a small town, so you end up kind of getting stuck here. But I mean, you mentioned about your following, but I was asking more from your personal experience. I mean, do you feel I guess more pride in knowing this information and history about where you live as well too? I mean, you're doing an important service, being able to get the word out of, on a lot of I guess history that's not really told. Yes, indeed, I do um, feel a lot of pride, um, and I continue with my um, monthly articles that I write for two local newspapers. I always write about topics that might be of interest to people. Um, and for instance, right now I'm working on another book. This will be my 13th um, that I'm writing because a friend of mine has started it and she died of COVID in 1920 and it was her family history. And they were some of the first people to settle in Long Beach in 1889. So I promised her before her before she died that I would finish the, finish the book. 
And um, so her daughter gave me five boxes of all of her notes that also included diaries from family members. Her one aunt, Ivy, had started to write a book. And so that's what I'm working on now. But again, I'm finding that you really need to check primary source materials. For instance, Ivy wrote that um, the family landed um, at Ellis Island, but they came in 1889 and Ellis Island wasn't open then. They, it was 1882 that Ellis Island opened and they had to go through Castle Garden. So even the name of the ship um, that Ivy said the family came over on was wrong because I had to check census records in order to verify uh, when they came. Is it possible that the record could be wrong as well too? Like if they called it something later and they might've got the date wrong when it was established? I'm sorry, what would have been the date? You said it wasn't named Ellis Island until later. Could that be a possible date mess up in the record? Oh no, it's all over the internet. Just look up the history of Ellis Island. And you'll find that before that, um, 1882, I believe, um, everybody landed at Castle Garden, which was in New York. And back then, nobody needed to have a visa or anything to get on in. All they needed was a ticket. So, uh, yeah. So look up Castle Garden is also an interesting topic to, um, to write about and discuss. And I'm going to be talking about it in um, the book that um, I'm writing now. Now, a lot of it was family memories, and so I'm adding an awful lot of history to the book, too. So I would say that about it's about 50-50 family memories, which I've had to go ahead and check, and then other things that were happening, like um, the, what the whole immigrant experience at Castle Island would have been like for somebody coming in from um, the, these, this family came from England. So, yeah, so it's interesting. Uh, I like to do research. I like to find out new things. And that's why you'll find all of my books are on a variety of topics. Do you ever find one? Like, I mean, I know we talked about the prohibition and your new book that you're going to be making, but is there one that you have that's either a particular interest of yours? Like, did you ever, did you just come across something and be like, I'm going to write about this? Or did you have something that you wanted to write about for a long time and you finally got to? Well, um, I started a chronology of Long Beach, and the first one was called um, Murderous Intent. And I like history to be factual as well as entertaining. And you can find such interesting people um, just by going through some primary source materials. For instance, in Murderous Intent, I talk about um, how small the police department was and how one officer had to go in out and check on a fella and tell him he could not have his daughter's coffin on his porch. And when, and, um, when uh, he was asked about it, he said, well, you know, I have so many kids and I had this buried, but then when we had a flood, you know, the coffin washed up and I decided to keep it out of the ground in case there were more floods. And he said, and who knows, maybe one of my other kids would die and I could use it again. Just put them all in together after we're, after all, they were siblings. So again, I, I try to make it entertaining as well as factual. So stories like that are ones that, oh, definitely I have to go ahead and put in the book. So anyway, and then so after Murders is Intent, that covered about 1880 up until 1900. And then... Um, no, covered 1880 up until 1920, because there wasn't an awful lot of stuff going on in Long Beach besides the guy with his, with the cop and on the porch. Um, and then Prohibition Madness was my next one. And oh boy, as I said, the population had gone from 55,000 to 126 just within a couple of years. And um, there was an awful a lot going on. So after Prohibition Madness, I wrote um, a book basically from the mid-1930s up until the end of World War II, which was called Fighting Fear, and talked about what was going on locally. And then after that, um, from the 40s up until the 1970s, I wrote a book called uh, The Red Scare, UFO, and Elvis. 
So it was talking about what was going on during that period of time, the Cold War, the duck and cover era, when you know kids were told to duck and cover, when everyone was afraid that you know Russia was going to attack us with the nuclear bomb. Did, can I ask about that? Did you find that there were a lot of people, especially like media-wise or journalistic-wise or just average citizens that were kind of questioning the communism thing? I have a big interest in the 70s and kind of the Cold War when it comes to the labeling of communism and the way that people were like – you were hiding under your desk for when a bomb was going to fall, like you know, like that type deal. Right. I remember doing that myself. Yeah. Duck and cover it was called. Yeah, there was a big fear of, of communism, you know, what was going on with um, McCarthy and um, being blacklisted, especially among um, performers, among writers. Um, yeah, you could go ahead and um, um, be taken off to jail. Um, when I was really young, before we moved to California, I moved here when I was seven. I lived in Pennsylvania, and I still vaguely remember the FBI coming and taking off some of our neighbors. And um, we never found out what happened to them, but they must have been communist sympathizers or something. That's so crazy to me looking at the FBI, like even the production code office that they had about the censorship in movies and films. I mean, when you were right, you wrote about Elvis. Elvis wasn't censored, was he? <laughs> well, they tried to, you know, that wiggle was too provocative for you can't um, many censor of the, the king. generation. <laughs> To deal with, yeah, yeah, and they didn't want their young kids, you know, associating with something like that. So, yeah, it was provocative. You can't censor the king. The king is, I mean, that to me was interesting as when I was looking through Nixon, I saw him, uh, a photo of Nixon and Elvis shaking hands. And that's just about Elvis. Elvis was involved in so many different things where I was like, man, most people would be like taking a nap in your free time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, but then there were the UFOs that were being seen. That was a big thing. Um, the head of Project Blue Book, actually, when he retired, he moved to Long Beach and he lived here. And so he was often questioned about the research that they found. And um, it's also interesting now. Have you watched the series? Um, is it Skywalker Ranch? The sun? No, it's it's Skinwalker Ranch, my buddy TJ show. Yeah, yeah. So you, you just wonder about, you know, everything that's going on and whatnot. But back then, um, a lot of what were called UFOs were actually just test flights by the federal government um, over, you know, spy craft and things like that. And they just didn't want the Russians to know about it. But you there see were that a probably few that were a little during... bit. You saw you probably saw that peak up during the Cold War, especially. I've been through some of those UFO documents that they have on the government's website, and it's like the Cold War. They don't know if it's new technology. They don't know if they have to call it this or hide the technology that they have and call it UFOs just so other governments you – know, because I think everyone was stealing each other's information at that time. So they thought if there was a spy in their midst, there's some documents that aren't even real documents, but they are in the archives because of the fact they were worried about spies coming in and leaking intelligence. They'd run off with the wrong information, which is just like – Man, I'm looking through these stuff with like a historical lens, trying to look at the past. I'm like, is this real? Can I trust this? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, yes. So it's um, it's been an interesting journey that I've been taking through all different periods of history. So um, I like what I'm doing. I'm retired now, and it keeps me active. Do you find that a lot of people reach out to you to talk about some of the history of Long Beach? I would feel like if you're a kid from that area, you just want to know more about – I mean, no, it's not necessarily on the forefront of things, but having a blog and writing your books as well too is a really important way to get the message out. Yeah, I get emails all the time from people that are asking me questions, or they'll find something um, in one of my books. For instance, in Prohibition Madness, I talked about um, Ralph McAdams. Um, who was murdered on the pike. And I, his niece reached out to me and she said, oh, I never knew anything about this happening to my uncle. And she thanked me so much about it and sent me pictures of him and other things. So, um, yeah, I do hear an awful lot from people that have read the book that might know more um, and send me updated information. Um, and um, yeah, I, and I work on a number of projects. Um, one um, 
program that's been on PBS is called The Sky Blue Sea, which talks about Long Beach and early aviation and the Navy. And then another fellow has just reached out to me within the last week, and I'm going to work with him on a project on the 1910 um, Dominguez Air Meet. And um, so he wants to put together a program for PBS on that. That's, I mean, that's it. I'm good thing you're getting press as well, too, when it comes to that. I mean, I, I'm still up. I, I can't, I didn't know about the person that was head of Project Blue Book even moving out to Long Beach. I'm surprised it doesn't get really mentioned a whole lot. Well, you are mentioning it now. Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I do mention it in my book, The, the uh, Red Scare UFO and Elvis, and talk more about what was going on here in Long Beach and different sightings and whatnot. Did uh, I mean, any of the, I know you mentioned a lot of those sightings being like military aviation or something during the Cold War, but I mean, do you ever get skeptical on some of that alien stuff? Um, sometimes I do with what's being reported, but when you just look into the universe, you know that there has to be more out there than just us. So but they must be um, a nicer group because they haven't really interfered, I don't think. <laughs> Unless that's where Elvis got his songs from. I have no clue. <laughs> oh, yeah. Elvis was an alien. So let's start when that rumor. Yeah. When it comes to, um, honestly, his songs were out of this world. Come on now. Uh, no, but when it comes to the history of Long Beach, and I mean, you ever thought about being at least a tour guide or be able to help out with, um, you know, maybe be able to work at a museum when it comes to the factor of being able to talk to people? I mean, you are easily able i mean easily talk to to me so i feel like you'd be good well, at teaching i i give programs i give lectures and i've been doing it for years but i'm at a point and i've been asked to be a docent um i've been asked to do all sorts of things um i do but i've cut back on it because i am now retired um we're we have another home that's in northern california that we spend a lot of time with and i like to travel and it, I, I, so I, I've been saying no to people um, and when it comes to doing lectures and things like that again. Um, I'm retired. I'm just happy to write my um, two blogs a month for the local newspapers. I'm happy. I do work um, every year on, at the cemetery tour that the Historical Society of Long Beach does. So, um, and then people can come there and talk to me, give me stories, <clears throat> including ghosts that they might have seen. <laughs> there was one woman that came to me that told me that she saw little gremlins that were um, hopping from tombstone to tombstone. And I just sat back and said, oh, yeah, that's really interesting. <laughs> and there was another person that came and said, um, if you look over there where the mausoleum is um we were filming and he gave me the name of the movie which i can't remember and he says and as we were sitting there there was a little boy that was up by one of the tombstones that kept you know running around and whatnot and he was there for quite some time and he said i went up there to check him out he hid behind the tombstone and when i went there he wasn't there anymore so, you know, you you meet an awful lot of people, especially when you're doing something in a cemetery. I'd have to feel like if you uh you, you were looking up people's like homes or where there might be like a certain story that happened in their homes. How many people came to you about it, like an issue like, hey, did anybody mysteriously die in the house? Because I have some weird creeping at night. Well. My first book, which I wrote for the Historical Society to raise money, was called Haunted Long Beach. And um, we, I was on their publication committee and um, we sort of joked around and I said, well, if you want to make money, you got to write about ghosts because I had just been back at, um, visiting Gettysburg and there were all of these books on the ghosts of Gettysburg. And I said, and they were, people were buying them. So they laughed about the project and whatnot, thinking this is not going to be, you know, very um, reputable research. And I said, well, you know, we can go ahead. I said I had found um, a number of articles in the local newspaper about ghost sightings. And so um, we decided, okay, we'll go ahead and we'll do a book on um, haunted Long Beach. So we put out flyers at all of our 12 libraries in Long Beach called 
have you seen a ghost lately? And um, we got back quite a number of responses. And to be sort of scientific about it, if you can be scientific about ghosts, we always ask that it be a first-person encounter. Um, and it's very interesting. One of the questions we asked was, you know, is this the first time you've seen a ghost? And people said, um, no. So I came to the conclusion there, that there are certain people that um, have this gene, this psychic gene that allow them to um, look into other realities or whatever you want to call it. But remember, I mentioned that we went ahead and we put in addresses um, whenever events occurred, including obituaries and including murders and suicides. And when I wrote Haunted Long Beach 2, because everybody wanted a sequel to that book, um, I was able to pinpoint a number of ghosts related to suicides or murders that had taken place at different places um, in Long Beach by address. So that's what makes this book a little bit different, is that we were able to go ahead and document what had actually happened. Now, do you believe in ghosts? I have had so many people come to me in earnest and tell me about what they have seen or experienced that I definitely don't believe that they were lying. I do know that they were experiencing something. So, yes, I do believe in ghosts. I've spoken to some people with some experiences, and I definitely – the way that they talk about it is there's something where it's like I don't think you're lying, but you saw something or you experienced something. And whether it's a memory thing, I have no clue. But I don't know. I keep a little bit of faith out there, try and be a little bit optimistic when it comes to that type of thing. I think it's interesting. It's much like the alien thing. I don't want to think we're alone in the universe. That would be a terrible and dumb way to live. Well, look at what um, they're discovering now with quantum um, physics, quantum mechanics, that there's nine parallel universes to ours. And who's to say that when we die, we just don't go into one of those? And that there are beings in those dimensions that we don't know about yet that um, try to communicate with us and are able to get through. In um, the Haunted Long Beach books that I did, there was Haunted Long Beach 1, and then there was Haunted Long Beach 2. Um, in Haunted Long Beach 2, I did some research, and there was a psychic by the name of Jane Roberts who communicated with an entity called Seth. And they're called the Seth books. There, um, and she would relate what Seth was talking about about different topics and whatnot, and different realms. And one of the things that he said was that it takes a certain amount of energy within the Earth to go ahead and um, project myself to you. So energy is what it's all about. We're energy beings. We don't. Um, our energy does not cease to be once we die. It's just transformed. That's the second law of thermodynamics. So anyway, we're getting off of prohibition now. We're getting into ghosts. So, um, I, you've, you've written plenty of books that we could probably spend hours talking about, but I appreciate the time you gave me to talk about the prohibition books and also a couple of your others as well, too. But is there a place where people can find your links? Oh, my website, ClaudineBurnettBooks.com. C-L-A-U-D-I-N-E-B-U-R-N-E-T-T-B-O-O-K-S.com. Do you have any social media links? Oh, I have a Facebook page, yeah, for my books. Yes, I do. And um, it's just Claudine Burnett Books on Facebook for that. And um, when it comes to anybody out there listening that would want to go check out your books as well, too, um, I think you know this definitely learning a little more about you is good. But um, is there any messages you want to leave to anybody out there that could be listening? Well, unfortunately, an awful lot of bookstores have closed recently, especially here in Long Beach. So um, the Historical Society carries my books, and but if you really want to buy them, Amazon or um, Barnes and Noble are the uh, sites to go to, or the publisher. To go ahead and buy the books. Oh, and by the way, all of the profits from my books, as well as my speaking engagements and research, goes towards digitization projects of, of area newspapers. Um, I think it's very important for people to be able to study 
primary sources and digitization is the only way to go ahead and do it. And so there's an awful lot of material out there that needs to be digitized. And that's what my money goes towards. How much does it cost to digitize something? Um, you'd have to ask the people that I give money to. Um, Cal, it's, um, UC Riverside has a program where they're digitizing California newspapers, and it's available online for everybody to go ahead and look at free of charge. Um, I don't know. I just give them the amount of money that I gather, and it goes to whatever cause, to whatever thing that they want to work with. Like, like I said, I'm big into the assassination of JFK. I've spoken like Bob Blakey from the House Select Committee on Assassinations. I've spoken to many members of the Assassination Records Review Board, and it always just fascinates me when they scan in documents or where you find a collection of archives of some like college or something like Baylor University has a bunch of documents related to the Kennedy assassination, which is just like, how many did you guys print? Like, I mean, in that time, I've, I think in the past year, I've been over 64,000 things of documents. And I keep thinking, I'm like, oh, this has to be the end of the barrel. Nope. And then you, you still find another one or someone has it in their basement or something. Yeah, yeah, you can. Yeah, that's very true. And the thing with digitization is that you can go ahead and um, search through like keywords and other things like that, um, which makes it easier if you're just looking for one particular topic to go after. So, Yeah. And so that's where all of my money goes towards. A lot, of, a lot of it being online helps people that necessarily don't live close by to be able to access the information as well, too. That is very, very true. In fact, in this latest book, I was looking at um, some of the archives from um, Britain um, for my, my book that I'm writing now. And to go ahead and fill in details of what, about what their life must have been like in, um, in England before they decided to immigrate to the United States. So. And I was the family home. Actually, I was able to find in a British newspaper articles about what it looked like all the way back in 1810. So I just found that that was remarkable. Well, look, I'm going to link all your links in the description for people to be able to find. And I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.